Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the writer strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight. Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support the cause. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome, this is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Roussel, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Manischel, I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently making others, including a horror comedy called Best Friends Forever. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative. This week, we welcome writer-director Emily Apt on the show to talk about making her first feature film, Toe to Toe, in 2009, and her experience premiering at Sundance, her 14-year break to making her second feature film, Thirsty, which I am working on in the editorial department, hello, just, uh, you know, in the background, getting reps, losing reps, and making three documentary features in between, all while raising two kids, which is incredible. After that, we play another round of the game. But first, Liz, how are you doing? Oh, I was so enraptured by that that I did not think ahead. How am I doing? I'm you never doing, think ahead. I never think <laughs> ahead at this part. This part I've never prepared for. I've started drinking coffee, which has been wonderful and has made my life feel better. That is not substantial enough of an update for a podcast. I guess I want to talk a little bit about my Patreon campaign, not in an effort to get money from our listeners, but in that I'm doing a Patreon campaign to document the the creation of my third feature. And I realized that Patreon's really confusing and that it's like, and you and I, we, you know, we we're familiar with Patreon because of the podcast Patreon campaign, but it's just like this one long news feed And it's very hard to use it as like an educational tool or a way to provide substantial content. It really feels like it's just like an update platform. So I'm really trying to work on monkeying with this platform so that people who jump in in the middle of us making this movie can watch the entire journey from beginning to end and not feel like they have Mm. to scroll down for two years to get Mm. meaningful insight. So that's like the main quandary of what I'm dealing with, which doesn't sound that dramatic, but it's it's because I, I'm starting to realize that I think that this Patreon campaign may need to fund the movie because we're in the midst yeah. of a writer strike and I really do not want to yeah. engage in traditional financing at this point. How's it going, by the way? Like, is the Patreon like exploding? Like, what you want to brag a little bit about your numbers? Like, how are, how are things going? <laughs> you know, my goal is to get a thousand backers and we're at 124. So nice. like we're, we're 10% there. There's this, it's a book, but it was a, originally just a, a news piece called uh, Huth, A Thousand True Fans. And it's all about how an artist can lead a sustainable lifestyle if they have a thousand true fans. And so that's my, that's like the guiding light for me. It's going all right. People are very supportive, very sweet. I take it very personally when people leave the Patreon campaign. <laughs> And on which you sh- which you shouldn't, <laughs> I know. But on May first, like three people left, and it's thrown me into a uh, not no. not a tailspin, but like a minor reevaluation <laughs> period of like, how can I make this better for people? I really want to provide a resource <laughs> and be a community, and I. So I've spent a half hour with Amy Taylor, co-writer of Best Friends Forever, and we decided that what I'm going to do is I'm going to do five minute tutorials on educational tutorials on every aspect of the film industry 
and I'm going to do them weekly. So I'm going to interview different experts and do like five minute interviews so that people can use us as like a mini film school. And then it's not just a Patreon campaign about me and my creative journey, but it's about how can I be an educational resource for people and use my platform for for those purposes. Right. I don't know how much you want to talk about this on the show, but I, I, I want to just have some fun. So I'm looking at your, your page now. Are you oh, comfortable God. talking about the dollar amount that you have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're bringing in $370 a month from 124 people, which is in really impressive and incredible and amazing. Yeah. You know, and like, that's like, you know, three times what the podcast is doing, which is, you know, totally great. You know, I mean, I'm really proud of what we're doing with the podcast. Yeah. But my point is, so if you're thinking about this across a year, right, that's roughly like $3,600, basically, mm-hmm. that you'd be bringing in. So if you 10 exit like your plan is, then you're really only going to be bringing in roughly thirty six thousand dollars in a year yes which from a budget perspective <laughs> well how many years do you think you you need like three solid years at least maybe four well how long is this writer strike gonna take a <laughs> b i think that the more we grow the more people we meet the more potential we have to find investors right yeah. now i we talked about this last week on the show it's like what are we allowed to do and i was starting to engage with a production company before the before the writer strike began and i reached out to them to check in and they were like we're not taking meetings until the strike is over and i wrote back yeah. good for you i love that i'll reach out when the strike is over but that was like my last lead you know what i mean so right. and i think i'm in a place that like uh I don't know where to go from here. I think it's like tentative in every direction because you want to be respectful. You don't want to cross, don't cross the streams. You don't want to like do anything wrong. (laughs) Don't want to do anything wrong right now. So yes, there may be opportunities to find equity investors, you know, individual equity investors. But I was thinking, why not take this time to see if I can make something really happen with the Patreon? I don't know if you've looked at other Patreon campaigns, but like... There are people really leading yeah. sustainable lives based off of their Patreon. Yeah. So yeah, totally. No, it's crazy. I, I have seen some others. Yeah, you know, so from some other podcasts and other just people in general, and like, yeah, they're like, you know, like basically roughly at your goal, you know, of of what you're aiming oh, yeah. to do. Thousands. So it's like, yeah, yeah, it's crazy, or 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 more. Yeah. So I just think like it's something that I wish I could put more time to the podcast to like make a thing but like on the other hand like you know i'm giving what i can to it and i, yeah. I mean hopefully i'll give more attention and and uh, you know support to it later but the thing i wanted to say was that you're totally right like doing because like just through my crowdfunding campaign i met equity investors yeah. through that process so if you're doing it on a month monthly basis uh, for years like you're bound to meet equity investors this way at least so, one right or like yeah, like maybe sure. f- flirt with one there's like maybe half yeah. of an opportunity there that i could find i mean i just think that it's a really good uh idea and a really like like a good practice it's just like whether or not you're gonna be able to raise your whole your the budget for your movie through this or not that that i'm really curious to see and and if you can do it then i'm gonna copy you <laughs> Then I will tell everyone my secrets and the secrets will just be like, don't sleep. But, you know, who knows? Don't sleep. (laughs) 
how long do you think this is the writer strike's gonna last? Two months? Three? No, no. Okay. it can't possibly last that long, right? Like they would be so screwed if there was no writing happening for two months. I I don't think that's true. Just from really? distribution, there's a lot of stockpiling of content months in advance, like five, six, seven, eight months in advance. So there was this article where like a studio exec was like, consumers are are not going to see the difference for a while. And a lot of writers and creators were like insulted by that. And they were like, mm. how rude, you know, but actually that's true. I don't think consumers are going to see the difference for a long time. But I do think because the DGA and IATSE are involved now too in SAG, which they weren't as intricately involved in the last writer strike of 2007. I'm hoping that it'll be less than 100 days. Like that's what's in my mind, just that it's more powerful, it's more vocal. But they're time. not going on strike. The, the They're not, but they're being they're going to the meetings, they're they're picketing, they're they're showing their faces and they're mm, being real loud mm. about it. That gives mm. me hope. What do you think? What do you? What's in your brain? I have no idea. I guess I, I feel like eventually, you know, these the studios or or whoever is being targeted. I, I guess it is the studios. Like they're going to just have to make concessions. They're going to have to agree to yeah. to some of these demands. Like they just have to. You know, like it's not it's not like it's going to go away <laughs> at, at any point. Like this is going to keep on coming back oh, up. Like they yeah. don't, you know, so like. They're they're gonna have to 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 give in, you know. Well, I agree. This only ends one way. It's just how long it's right. gonna take. <laughs> exactly. Because I don't I don't see those writers giving up. I completely agree. There's there's this momentum. There's like this beautiful energy and yeah. right righteousness that's like fueling this right now. I mean, President Biden is like supporting the strike, so it's like okay, you know, like really now, what what like what are you gonna do? So I just feel like you know. Like, you're right. Like, there is a lot of stockpiling of, of shows, but, like, they're always wanting to get their, their tent poles, their, their big next thing going, you know, and they can't do that. But if, they can't. If this, how? Well, isn't it that they can, I mean, if they already bought the show, if they already have, like, the scripted content, they just can't bring the writer on set during the strike because they, that would be, you know, because the writers are striking. So it's like they're going to probably attempt... To go forward with the scripts without editing or redelivery or monkeying of the scripts. But like in is production. James Gunn, who's like the head of the DC universe or whatever, who's also a writer director, is he literally gonna like, yes, we're making the next Batman Superman movie? Oh, no, I mean, in, no, oh, fuck no. no, that's not happening. I'm thinking about like <laughs> HBO, like I'm thinking about like, the concession, what is, sorry, the successions of the world or whatever. It's like for these series that maybe already have delivered scripts or maybe they don't, or maybe they do want to lean on AI or whatever. It's like, I think they're <laughs> going to try. I do think they're going to try. And then hopefully they'll I find mean, out that, that it's not going to work. I think in like some, some specific cases, there's probably some of that going on, but I think like, you know, for a lot of this stuff that like I like to follow, that like the script is like they're hiring this writer to write the script, or like the like the Blade movie, like the Blade movie is not going anywhere. Like that movie is not going to be shot until this ends. Yeah, you know, because like they're like in the middle of writing the script right now. Yeah. So you know, it's just like, and, and I mean, in movies like that in general, they're writing constantly up it, like while they're shooting. So I don't I don't understand yeah. like how you could possibly make any really big movie 
right now, unless maybe TV. Maybe TV is the I'm one. I'm thinking way about TV. That's all I'm thinking about is TV yeah. for some reason. I don't know why my mind defaulted to TV and yours defaulted to film. <laughs> right. But I was thinking about like series scripts that probably are already in the executive's point of view in good enough shape to go forward. Yeah. Right. But yeah. yeah, I completely agree. It's like for tenpole features for larger projects. What exactly is going to happen there? I'm not sure. We should bring in a, on a writer who's been on the show before to talk about this. Like we, we just talked that. to some really amazing writers who live in writers' rooms, and one who had an overall deal at Sony. And I was just reading about how the overall deals are being affected, and like those are all being suspended <sighs> right now, which is like, you know, kind of crazy. So I, I, I would love to talk to one of them and be like, hey. What is it like from your perspective? Like, what do you think yeah. about this whole thing? Like, are you picketing every day? What are you hearing on the ground? You know, like, yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to to pick some brains. So hopefully we can do that. Absolutely. I think we should do a WGA strike episode. Yeah, that would be awesome. What are you up to? Yeah, I don't know. Well, I do know. So I, I actually, I had this thing I was supposed to read. My daughter, like, just completely coming in the background. Yeah. She's just <laughs> screaming like crazy right now. In a happy way, her little squeaks. Mm-hmm. So back in January, I got reached out to by this comic book writer who saw the alternate, really loved it, and wanted me to be the writer director of his comic book movie adaptation, mm-hmm. which he had like basically had a trailer made for one version of it, and then he had a couple a pilot episode and another episode of a script written for it, and then he has two episodes of the comic book, and then. Th- three more that were written but never turned into a comic book. So I've been like reading this stuff over months. And like, I basically like after reading the second I- issue, I kind of hit a, hit a wall and I just like, was like not reading it. And I, and I kind of was like, like I get the gist, but like, I really want to read everything. So I like know like the full scope of what the, what the story is written, you know, so I can kind of comprehend like what I think of it. And I finished it over the weekend and it was very interesting. So I started thinking about like, oh, this idea, that idea, this idea. At the same time, I, I was traveling to Seattle. So I was on the plane for a little while and I had some time to to write. So I actually wrote a little bit on my script that I've been like ignoring forever. <gasps> so that was great. Did Worked on a scene and rewrote another scene and did some outlining. And then, yeah, I, then I finished that other script I was reading that I wasn't very happy with. So I finished that. And then I started another script. So I was like reading a heck of scripts and I was writing a little bit. So I had like a really fun, creative weekend of like processing and thinking about story, you know, and starting to the point where it's getting a little muddled in my head between all the projects. And I'm just trying to decide like, what do I do? Like, do I, which one do I focus on? And part of me is like, wants to do a little bit of everything, you know, which is like probably bad, but maybe good. So I think I'm going to like try to do like an outline, rough, rough outline for the comic book thing so that me and the writer can talk about it and like see if he even likes it and then like Mm -hmm. decide what to do from there. Like if I'm going to write it on spec or if we're going to, you know, if I'm going to say like, look, I would love to write it, but I just don't have time. Like you have to pay me, you know, which like I don't want to be that person. But like at some point, like you kind of have to be that person when you have so many different commitments, you know, and then, you know. Yeah, just start to see where it all lands. But the script I started reading now is actually really uh, engaging and very different than like anything I've really read before. You know, it's it's so it's about a, a, a trial and you sort of see it from different points in time through the jurors perspective. So you see the jurors being interviewed 
And then you see the jurors like moving from one hotel to another hotel because there was like a fire at one of their hotels. So then like you're like, oh, are the jurors being targeted by somebody? So it's like it's really interesting, interesting story. So yeah, that's what's going on with me reading, writing, thinking about where I want to focus my energy, you know, and like trying to get back into like a rather regular rhythm of writing. But you know what you should be doing on a regular rhythm is you should be checking out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. This is the way that the show continues to to exist. You can sign up for $1.99 and get access to all the the back episodes. So like we have episodes 300 through 350 or one through 350. So it's 350 episodes, which are behind the paywall. But at $1.99, you get access to those, which is amazing. Also want to say a big, big happy birthday to Clara Bell. Thanks so much for showing the, supporting the show, Clara. Woohoo! Clara says, your guests are very generous in sharing their experience and their movie-making journeys. I can't wait to dive into past episodes. I feel that I've learned something from all the episodes I've listened to so far. Then she says, "Don't you don't have to give me a shout-out if you don't want to, but we want to, of course. But she said, if you do want to plug me, I'm recording a comedy album on May 13th and 20th in Oakland, and I think the album will be out this summer. People can go to my website, www.iloveclara.com, for more info. But the biggest thing you can do is plug the movie that we're all making together. So Liz is attached to Clara's first feature as a director. I'm helping out as a producer, and we're trying to get this movie off the ground, which has been a lot of fun so far. And the first thing that Liz and I have ever collaborated on in all the years that we've known each other. So this is pretty Bay exciting. Area. So- Bay Area filmmaking. Bay Area. So Clara, thank you so much for bringing us together. And everyone should check out Clara's comedy because she is very, very funny. Also, don't forget to check out Jambox.io. It's a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty great. You can use our code MMIH to get a 20% discount on your year-long subscription. But without any more delay, here is our chat with Emily Apt. We are here with Emily Apt, a director of Thirsty, among other films. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Good to be here. Give us the elevator pitch for Thirsty. Okay. All right. Well, Thirsty is about a gutsy public defender who decides to run against a very popular incumbent mayor in Oakland. If you could say anything about it, what was like the rough budget of the movie or something close to the rough budget? I cannot speak on that, my friend, because (laughs) that could hurt our sales potential. So what I will say is that we did a lot with a little. That's what I'll say. (laughs) Can you speak a little bit about the origin of the idea? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was growing up, my my mom ran for office twice. She ran for city council and state senate and lost both times, but does not regret either of her campaigns. Campaigns. So I was always interested interested in women and politics and women running for office, that whole experience. And I, I myself am very politically inclined. So I think that had I not gotten into filmmaking, 
thinking I, I might have gotten into politics. And I actually see a lot of parallels between women filmmakers and women politicians in that, you know, you got to be great at selling a vision. You got to be an amazing cheerleader of sorts, you know, really enthusiastic and be able to collaborate well with a lot of people. You got to be able to raise money, or at least I have, you know, <laughs> I haven't been able to convince that many people to raise money on my behalf. It's really been me, you know, hitting that pavement myself. So like I said, I think there's a lot of intersections between the women filmmaker experience and the woman politician experience. So that's that was really part of what intrigued me. And then I, I did like 20 interviews. I interviewed a lot of women politicians and I was very drawn to the aspects of their stories that weren't maybe so press friendly. I was lucky these women were very transparent with me, very vulnerable. And I think the content of those stories and the anecdotes that really stood out to me were the times when these women stumbled and then, you know, regained their footing. And I thought there was a lot of like sort of heroicism in the small moments of failure, honestly, in their campaigns and hearing about how they kind of readjusted and, and overcame obstacles was, was so beautiful. And actually, Malia Cohen, who's one of the producers on the project, she has this saying that I love so much, which is, you know, you have to fight through the no's to get to the yeses. And I think that's so true and really resonates for filmmakers as well. So again, just a lot of a lot of parallels in these experiences. And I was really drawn to the more vulnerable, intimate aspects of the stories I was hearing from women politicians. So I started thinking about, you know, how amazing, how inspiring it would be to capture the campaign of a very gutsy, flawed, real woman like Audrey, who makes mistakes, deeply imperfect, but is still is still running and is still trying to actualize her dreams. How long do you spend working on the film from like coming up with this idea and having this whole process to it's real? Well, it's not out yet, but to it, you making the movie. It's so funny with this question because I've kind of grappled with how honest to be about it because over the years, I've definitely felt some shame around the fact that it's taken me so long to do my second narrative feature. So my first narrative feature was at Sundance back at 2000. Nine. So it's been a minute <laughs> since I have made my, my last narrative feature. And there's a lot of writing around how women filmmakers in particular often sort of stumble after their first feature and, and don't get to make a second. And I think there's some term for it, like second feature. A sophomore slump. Yeah, sophomore slump sophomore slump. So that happens to women filmmakers a lot. And I can certainly get into my, my theories on that. But the the short answer, well, I've already gone off track on the short answer. But it, the bottom line is it took me 14 years to make this movie. And I can tell you why if you'd like to hear that. <laughs> but it's 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 definitely been a labor of love and taken a little longer than I ideally would have liked. I think we're gonna like what is that ear? What is the ear note? What is that expression? Oh, yeah. Ear, yeah, ear note. Tag, yeah, I know what you mean. We will ask that question. Don't you worry. I think the whole podcast, we could talk about that question. <laughs> the final one from just this intro set of questions is, 
if you could change one thing about the film in any way at this point, I know you're in the thick of it right now still, what would it be? Not a damn thing. I am so <laughs> proud of this movie and proud of the team that put it together. I'm proud of our amazing cast. I mean, it's really hard to articulate how happy I am with this film. And thank God, because I just told you that it took me 14 years <laughs> to get to this stage. Yeah, it's been pretty beautiful and I feel very blessed and I can't I, I really can't say any area that that I feel like we're coming up short I think you know there's always hard choices around budget so for example we're starting to think about music and score and I happen to be in love with a lot of expensive songs so <laughs> I, I guess <laughs> I could say that I'm sad about our music budget or lack thereof that's what I'm sad about <laughs> <laughs> so this is like the thing that we talked a lot about when we met before in person, but like, I want to hear a little bit about like, you know, you have your first feature, it premieres at Sundance, like it's a big deal. And then, you know, we're, we're here 14 years later with a second narrative feature. So like, I want to hear a little bit about what happened after Sundance and some of the reasons why this next movie didn't happen, you know, within like five years or so. Yeah, well, we've talked about this some before and, you know, we're, we're all parents here. So, so we know that being a parent and an independent filmmaker simultaneously can be a bit challenging. I wouldn't have it any other way. But I think that I decided a long time ago that no movie was going to make me into a bad parent. And that was kind of a big decision because I really love being a filmmaker and I'm incredibly passionate about it. But I'm also incredibly passionate about being a present mother. And I think, you know, both moms and dads are going to be able to relate to what I'm saying here. And that I think for me, if I was like a great artist and also a bad parent, I would feel like a walking oxymoron. Because for me, I am in this game. I'm a filmmaker because I ultimately want to inspire positive social change, you know? That's really that's 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 my that's my kind of raison d'etre for for doing this. And so if I was doing that while also being a crappy parent, I feel like I would be sort of canceling things out because we all know as parents that, you know, if you don't do things well, you can raise someone who, who is not a good person. But if you are a great parent, you kind of contribute to society this this beautiful human that then you know, hopefully there's a ripple effect there. And then they have, you know, their, they parent the next generation or whatever. And so anyway, I, that, that's something that's important to me that in this journey of being a filmmaker, that I'm also a present parent. And so what that comes down to in the kind of day-to-day -day reality is there are very tough sort of economic decisions to be made. And I think the hard thing about being a parent and artist simultaneously is like, obviously, you got to pay your bills and you're now a provider. So it's not just about you as like a scrappy artist eating beans from the can. Like you can only <laughs> suffer so much before you really affect your family as, as well. So you got to, you know, take the work that comes, you know. So for me, I've, you know, done so many corporate videos. If you look 
at my IMDP page, you'll see that I've done a lot of pharmaceutical videos. I have really needed to quote unquote pay the rent with my filmmaking. So, and I, that's, you know, part of also why I work as a cinematographer. But I also think that, you know, it's so important to also push your own projects forward. And so you've got to do the work that pays the bills, but you've also got to nurture your own projects. And then on top of that, you got to be a good parent. And so, so you got to be a little bit easy on yourself in terms of the timeline. And I had to be patient as I pushed this project forward. And it was just something over the years that I kept kind of clutching to <laughs> against the odds and pushing forward the best way I could. But I also had to be a provider and a good parent. So things took a little longer than I would have liked. I want to just acknowledge, maybe we will acknowledge this in a minute, but I'm jumping the gun by acknowledging that it, yes, you've made two fiction features, but you've made five features. You know, it's not as if it's those 14 years were filled with corporate videos, but also like nonfiction features and larger projects. And so I just kind of want to like plant that in there because I feel like we're get you know, you deserve like all of that credit. I also want to acknowledge that Ulrich and I are are separately very strangely both about to have our second child. And I think there's this acknowledgement of we're stepping into a, a stage of hell. And at least that's how I see it. <laughs> like, beautiful hell. Beautiful, beautiful, hell. beautiful, just, yeah, just delicious hell. And so I'm just curious, like, when you talk about being a parent and setting those boundaries and 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 placing your attention where you feel it deserves... Did your kids hit an age where you felt like you could step away and focus on the second feature? Or like what really greenlit this for you personally, where you could say, say, I'm ready for this now? Yeah, I mean, I think during that time, I was pushing as hard as I could. I think the the real reason that it took a while to make was was actually because of financing or lack thereof. Like I kept hoping, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of filmmakers out there will be able to relate to this. I kept hoping and praying that someone else would find or raise the money for this film. And there was a lot, a lot of reason to be hope. You know, we almost got it produced by a studio at one point. My big agency at the time was looking for financing. I've worked with several, several producers over the years, all very, very talented. But ultimately, they, the, the pr- producers that I worked with previously to Jeff, to Jeff Allard, they basically weren't as scrappy. They weren't willing to make the film at the same number, the same very low m- number that I was willing to. And, you know, I'm sure, and again, I'm sure you can relate to this. For me, I was like, I'll make it for $5. And like, you don't have to pay me. Like, let's just put this thing in the can, you know? But I think for a lot of producers, especially experienced producers, they know what struggle is ahead and they don't necessarily want to sign themselves up for that. But again, this is why I'm so thankful to Jeff because he he's scrappy and he has a very can-do kind of resourceful mindset. So he's like, we need a truck. I got a truck. You know, he's like that kind of producer. So Jeff always jokes that it's taken me this long to uh, make the film because we didn't meet earlier. So there's some of that. But thank you, just to take a step back, thank you for acknowledging my documentary work. I feel like a lot of times when I 
have meetings in LA, like my documentary work like doesn't even get on their radar. And as we all know, documentaries, especially feature documentaries, take a very long time to create. And I, I'm ambidextrous. I love making docs and I love doing fiction. So yes, when the fiction projects weren't coming together quickly enough, I, I went with kind of bird in the hand. Uh, I went with certain opportunities like Showtime hired me to do a doc. Yeah. And I've always loved doing documentary cinematography jobs as well. Does that answer your question or did I kind of... It does, but I secretly just want you to tell me like, age five, you can step away oh, from obsessing right. over your children and you could make <laughs> movies. <laughs> but, yes. Okay. All right. I, but, I, but your answer was fabulous. T- you know, for this worth. No, that is a very good question. And it's funny because this comes up often because my editor right now, he has an eight month year old and a two and a half year old. So he's really in the thick of things. And, you know, it's, it's rough just to try and make sure that all those individuals get a good night's sleep every day. You know, that's <laughs> kind of the, the level of challenge we're looking at. And so I'm always assuring him that yes, it absolutely gets easier. And I think with every pack, year, it gets more easy because like Jeff, for example, and don't be confused, there are two important Jeffs. <laughs> There's Jeff the producer and Jeff the editor. But Jeff the editor, you know, basically he's really hoping that he can leave the room for five minutes with his five-year-old. Now with me, on the other hand, like my 13-year-old and 11-year-old are very smart and resourceful young women and very independent at this point. So what they really need me for at this stage is, and I always joke about this with them, that I'm a very expensive chauffeur. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like I knew that was coming. Yes. And, you know, I, they, they have new and exciting expenses, you know, who knew that, you know, braces cost so much. And, you know, the, the eighth grader is headed to DC for a week with school. So, you know, you, you definitely have to keep up those, those breadwinner duties as they get older, but it's less, it's less time intensive for sure. What was it like getting the doc work? Like, did that just come through your manager? Did you have to work really hard to make those happen? Did any, did any, any of the docs were they ones that you originated or was it all like kind of paid for jobs that you got to get brought on and you know compensated for your time well let me just begin by saying that i've definitely worked hard for every single paid filmmaker <laughs> i've had i i think it's interesting so my my father is a german jew you know he escaped nazi germany and there's a lot of stereotypes around jews being you know so good with money and so well educated and all these kind of things but i i feel like what's at the core of the jewish experience is really resilience and you know it's not that jews are smarter than anybody else or wealthier than anybody else they just as a group i think try really hard and so that's what I really got from my father and his story is is resilience and trying really hard. And if I didn't have those two things, there's no way that I would be in this business for the 25 years that I've done it. And so back to your question about jobs, like I, I mean, I've just knocked on every door in terms of paid filmmaking opportunities. The 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 Showtime feature 
came to me because someone saw Daddy Don't Go and liked it. And I think that Showtime specifically wanted a woman director for this follow-up documentary that they were doing. And so that's kind of how I got that job. And then with Daddy Don't Go, the documentary feature that I did after Toe to Toe, that was really another kind of labor of love thing. And while I was making that film, I was also teaching two courses at Princeton. I was, you know, raising these two little girls. I was doing a lot of commercial jobs. I was producing reality television, I was, you know, kind of a little bit sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul. So I would get a decent paying job that I would immerse myself in as needed. And then I would toggle back to the documentary. And the thing is beautiful about documentaries is, first of all, they can be made very cheaply, especially if you, the filmmaker, are also the DP or the editor or whatever. So and you don't need to pay cast, you know, which you can make them very cheaply and they also benefit from being shot over a long period of time because essentially documentaries are sort of longitudinal studies of humans and humans are very very interesting when you see them change over time and that's actually what the best documentaries capture is they capture a lot of times ordinary human beings going through extraordinary changes over time and 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 that's why it's so compelling is because you you simmer all that down into an hour and a half. And it's like, oh, my God, like, look what this person went through. Look at their journey. But in terms of the actual production of docs, you know, the, the more time that passes between shoots, in a way, that really adds to the, the drama of, of your story arc. So, yeah. So I think I think that answers your question. Basically, a lot of juggling has taken place <laughs> over the last 14 years. A topic that comes up for us, because I'm in LA and Ulrich's in the Bay Area. I'm from Marin, by the way. So like there's like this Bay Area thing that runs through a podcast is can you build a life as a filmmaker outside of Los Angeles? I mean, obviously, you've proven that you can. Ulrich proves that you can. But do you ever, was that ever a question for you? Did you, what is this, and can you talk a little bit about the decision to stay in the Bay Area? I mean, obviously, there are extenuating circumstances for you with your husband, but I just want to hear a little bit about the push and the pull, but ultimately you made it work, right? Yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm making it work. <laughs> I feel like what you give up in not being in LA is you, you're you giving up a certain level of access because all businesses are driven by relationships. And that is especially true of the film industry. And if you think about how competitive our business is, how is that going to influence hiring decisions? Well, you're just going to be that much more likely to hire your friends or people you know or people you've already worked with given how competitive things are. So what you give up in in terms of not being in LA is that extra edge of being able to connect directly with a lot of the folks that are hiring and you know being able to have them over your house for dinner and you know see them when you drop off your kid, you know, all that kind of familiarity I think helps in terms of who gets the job and who doesn't. For me personally, I really, really love visiting LA. I feel like LA has amazing food, amazing weather. I have so many 
dear friends there. I love it kind of just on an aesthetic level. And I dreamed of living there for many years. And it was like an issue in my marriage. I was like, please, like we have to get to LA. And Shamik, my my husband was very gracious with me. Like we would always do his, when he had a sabbatical or like in the summer, like we would actually move to LA, babies and all, just so I could, you know, pitch in person and all of that. And I had one heartbreaking situation where I actually got an in-house job for Will Smith's company. It was called Overbrook at the time. And I, unfortunately, I had to pass on that job because they wanted me to be there in person twice a week. So I would have had to commute from New York at the time (laughs) twice a week. And so obviously, I couldn't do that with little kids. So I've had some heartbreaks, you know, because I was not based in LA. But I think ultimately, the most important thing for artists is that you live in a place that kind of feeds you spiritually and emotionally and that inspires you. And for me, I I love being in the Bay. And I love the film community we have here. It's smaller and feels more supportive than a lot of what I've come across in LA. It's, 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 it's less sort of cutthroat, you know? I think because it's a smaller group of people, we need to be nice to each other (laughs) because we're probably gonna you know overlap on various projects and i i'm happy to report that there is amazing crew in the bay area and just incredible local talent i worked with this incredible local casting director named nina henninger and she just fed me the most incredible local actors and so i feel very confident as a bay area filmmaker that you know there's just there there are real advantages to actually not being an LA based filmmaker that I think help mitigate some of the the challenges around around not being in in LA. And I also think that given the pandemic, that has kind of worked in favor in the favor of people filmmakers outside of LA because so many meetings now are happening over Zoom. And so you know I I, I know firsthand that just a lot of pitches even at the studio level and stuff it's all happening over zoom so so that bodes well (laughs) so i want to get to thirsty because you know you said 14 years to make this movie like what what about it (laughs) in year 13 14 allowed you to make it like i know you said it was a lot a lot to meeting a producer as scrappy as jeff but that's not the whole story like like how did you get the funds together how did you you know, get ready to shoot this movie, you know, in in December? Well, like I said before, this this movie was something that I kept clutching to against the odds. And it was really painful at times. Like I had, you know, family members, I had people very close to me professionally, really try and convince me to to stop trying to make this movie. And, and I totally understand why it was, it was just very difficult to keep it going at times, you know, both economically and personally. But the reason I always really believed in it and felt that it had teeth 
as a movie is really because it was it was so truthful. And why did I know it was so truthful? Well, because it was partly my truth. And I feel very passionate about women making movies and telling their stories because I think there's a lot of unfinished business when it comes to feminism. And I don't think that we can really expect to move things forward if we don't put our stories out there. Basically, if we don't actually share our experiences and our struggles. So, I mean, I remember one time when I was explaining to my then, I think she must have been like seven or eight, I was explaining to her why I was sad about something. And I think, you know, something had fallen through, there was some kind of disappointment related to the film. And, and I was being very honest and vulnerable with her. And I was like, sometimes it's, it's just really hard. Like I, you know, not I don't feel like a lot of people, you know, believe in this film, but but I believe in it. And she looked at me, you know, with this very <laughs> sweet look. And she said, I believe in you, mommy. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, thank you, sweetie. That's that's what I really needed to hear. And I think, you know, that's part of the beauty of, of being a parent is like your children really don't care whether or not your project moves forward or whether you're successful in any kind of, you know, specific way. They just really love you and, and root for you. And I think that's part of what kept me going too, is like, I wanted to set an example for my daughters that if you really believe in something, you should try and make it real, you know, even when it's really hard. And I'm so happy that my daughters have have been along with me for this journey. And they've seen me work so hard and suffer <laughs> a little bit as well. But it's it's paid off. Like I got to make this movie. And for that, I am incredibly grateful. I love that. I'm going to double down on a part of Ulrich's question that you didn't answer, though. And it, it, it would be if there's something specific about fundraising strategy that you've learned. I mean, we recently were asked, like, how do you, what was, I don't even remember Ulrich. I was like, how do you talk to investors or how do you pitch your film to investors? <laughs> and it's like, we're not asking you for a seminar on how to do that. That's a very long question to ask. But ultimately, did you find there was an angle of the story that that brought people on board? Or was there an asset that you had other than a deck or a cast attachment that you felt like turned the tide for you? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And I, I intend to really share and help other filmmakers with this process, because I feel like there's so many naysayers right now, like, you know, oh, the industry is just gone to shit. And, you know, there's no future for independent films and just a million reasons why you shouldn't even bother to, to make your movie. And I, I really disagree. And I think that if you're smart and resourceful, you can get it made. And I very much embrace kind of this idea of resource based filmmaking. So like, if you know a great actor, write the script for them. If you have access to an amazing free location, embrace it, write the script around that. For me, I I have so much to say about this topic. But I think a kind of headline to keep in mind is that people give money to other people. And to when you're trying to raise funds for your movie, keep in mind that you are going to really need to inspire people to, to invest in your film. So 
you have to be really inspired by your film. Passion sells because it's inspiring. And so if you aren't super passionate about this script, and I would argue if you can't sort of attach it to some kind of meaningful social issue or some deeply personal story, you're, you're going to have a real uphill battle. It's going to be a tough sell. On the contrary, if like for me with this film, uh, it's so much about women's leadership and promoting women's leadership. I was able to sell the importance of that effectively because I believe it's really important, you know, and it's, it's really interesting to think about how our financing actually came together. And I think for me, I always assumed that some tech millionaire would jump in and see the value of this project and and, and help us out with a few shekels because <laughs> there's so many rich tech millionaires around here. And I thought, oh, you know, that, that money's got to trickle down to the artists, you know, because all these wealthy folks, they they surely see the the beauty and the benefit of, of artists. And when you when you find to film, you get to, you know, help support so many different artists, actors, and, you know, anyway, isn't that a wonderful opportunity? As you might imagine, that is not where the money came from. The money actually came from a sort of cohort of, you know, relatively middle class feminists, you know, women who want to see other women in in positions of, of power in, you know, who want to see women lead, who want to see women in government. And they know that films have the ability to inspire people on on, on a very broad scale. And they saw, kind of saw the everyday heroism of our main character. And so I'm proud to share that that's, that's who breathed life into this script. It was mostly middle class women who really believed in the message of the film. That's amazing. I wanted to hear a little bit about like how you got connected with Jeff because like one of the things people always ask all the time is like how do you meet your producer how do you meet your producer so it's a kind of a two-part question one is like how did you meet Jeff and the other part is what had you already achieved with your movie at that point like you know I know you're not going to talk about budget but like was it like 20% of the budget raised 50% of the budget raised any percent of the budget raised like what what was your stage when he agreed to sign on Sadly, I had really no financing at that stage. But what I did have was a really, really good script. And a lot of industry people at that point were agreeing that it was a really good script. And I actually already had my casting director attached. And I had a few really strong associate producers attached and a great line producer, Maria Leon, was attached early on. And I think that part of the sell to Jeff was that I was incredibly determined to make this for whatever I could raise. And I also had prospects, you know, I, I couldn't say like, I've got checks in the bank, but I had a bunch of very good leads on financing. And I think he knew based on our first conversation that I was going to make this movie no matter what. I was definitely at that stage where I was very demonstratively committed. So I, yeah, I had a great script and a lot of conviction and a lot of good financing leads and also some other really 
strong crew members attached. And the way that I've met Jeff was, I think you got to kind of have some faith in the power of of networking and the, the power of relationships, because I had heard about Jeff a couple of times. And one producer that we had in common told me that Jeff was never gonna <laughs> like my script, that he was a genre guy. And <laughs> You know, keep dreaming type of conversation. But Jeff is a Asian American filmmaker and the male lead of my film is Asian American. And I I think it's a pretty pretty nuanced and new portrayal of uh, well, let me put it like this. I feel like a lot of Asian men don't get to play very nuanced roles. And this was an exceptionally nuanced and interesting role for an Asian male actor. So I was hoping that would attract him. But I think ultimately for Jeff, he's looking for really good scripts. Every producer is. And he's looking for scripts that are kind of feasible, you know, production-wise and finance-wise. And he also, he really loves making films in the Bay Area. And, you know, so the project ticked a bunch of boxes for him. And I got I got really lucky. And I feel, yeah, without Jeff, it might take another 14 years to <laughs> I used to work at Sundance, but I never I've never been accepted by any Sundance program. And so I've always occupied this very weird like like you know, I don't know, glass wall situation, right? And so I've just been curious. So when you played your first fiction feature at Sundance Film Festival, did you feel like you could attribute future success directly to that path? Oh, okay. I love this. Okay. She's shaking her head. No, Uh, please go go elaborate. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because when toe to toe got into dramatic competition at Sundance and that's, that's where you want to be, you know, that's like the best category. I, of course, like I was beyond thrilled and a lot of people who had not called me back earlier were now returning my calls and many other people were calling me and I I was literally just inundated <laughs> with emails and calls as soon as the announcement went out. It was very intense and intense emotionally too. It's like all these people that wanted nothing to do with me just a week ago are now literally my best friends. <laughs> it's, Hollywood is very invite only, you know, and it's 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 tough that way. Like if if they're not interested they're just you're not even gonna get a response they're just gonna ignore you and so then to have all those same people suddenly reaching out to you it was very very exciting and i remember there was some event for sundance filmmakers in new york before we left so it was like you know in early december or whatever to congratulate us or get us hyped i'm not sure but the feeling in the room was like your life will never be the same like this is you know, you've got the keys to the castle and all of that. But mind you, my film premiered in 2009. And that was a really tough year for indie film. So, you know, all the conversations that are happening now about how it's just like a death fall and like, you know, the streamers don't want your movie anymore. And the theaters are over and all of this, like that was a lot of the same, that was the same tenor of conversations in 2009 because of the mortgage crisis. Mm. So distributors were not buying a lot of films. 
So, I mean, it's funny. It's like once you get to the top of one hill, then you're at the bottom of another one. And so I was very pleased to like make it to this next level. And I think, you know, having been to Sundance looks really good on my bio and I really love it there. (laughs) And I, you know, I hope it bodes well for getting into Sundance again, like, of course. And as an alumni, you know, hopefully they look at your films with a little greater scrutiny. But it, it, it is not the end all be all for sure. I think the most important thing for any filmmaker is to actually sell your film. So for me at this point, what I really, really want for the film is I want to be able to pay our investors back because that's that's the business side. You know, if I can pay my investors back, then hopefully they'll invest in me again and invest in my movies again. And that's also what the business wants to see. It's not just, did you make a movie? It's, you know, or did you go to Sundance? It's, did you sell that movie, you know, and hopefully for for a profit. So I think having movies at Sundance definitely helps your career. Definitely. That's what got me an agent. But I should mention that I am now agentless. I lost my agent during a pandemic. And the, the love of an agent is very conditional. You know, it's based on, you know, a lot of factors, but you you have to keep landing big jobs and an agency is a business like like any other. So I think it's about continuing continuing to hustle a lot more than any specific accolade that comes your way as a filmmaker. And that includes Sundance. Well, I think it's about time for our final six questions. So I'm just going to dive right in. Okay. What's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? Could it be a feature? Could it be a short However you want to interpret the question. Yeah. Well, I actually took film classes all the way back in high school, but I won't talk about those films because they were uh, pretty whack. <laughs> they were pretty whack. <laughs> But I, I learned from making those, so that was a good thing. I made two shorts in graduate film school at Columbia. They were both shot on Super 16. They both involved me doing a lot of temp work and waitressing to finance. And I actually, I was very lucky. I got a Fulbright for my second short film that I that was my my thesis film for Columbia. But I I like both those shorts. I feel like they both have integrity and. Especially my first short that I did at Columbia was called Fancy Girl. And it was it was amusing and it featured one of the documentary subjects from the documentary that I had just done. So that was that was my first narrative short. And then my my first feature film was actually called Take It From Me. And it was a doc feature that I made. I started when I was a caseworker in New York City. I was only 22 at the time, but it was about a very timely subject matter. And it really had my heart in it. It was about four women transitioning from welfare to work and took me a couple of years to make. And I was, I had major beginner's luck. I sold that film to POV and it aired nationwide. So my, my first films were pretty damn good. (laughs) I gotta say, they were scrappy and they weren't, they weren't all beautiful, but they, they had a lot of heart. What's the best filmmaking advice or, or really good filmmaking advice you've received? I think the most important thing 
thing for filmmakers who want to endure is is you need to hone a technical skill because a lot of times that technical craft that you have, you know, that side hustle, whether it's editing or, you know, being a DP or, you know, catering, like whatever it is, you need to have a practical skill set that can get you paid when writing and directing doesn't because writing and directing often doesn't, especially in the early stages of your career. So that's that's the best advice that I've received and the best advice I can give to young filmmakers is make sure you hone a technical skill. What's the worst filmmaking advice that you've ever received? Give up. <laughs> yeah, so, so many people have uh, said that in different ways. I've, I've been rejected so many times that like when I'm rejected in a new way, I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. I've never actually been rejected <laughs> in quite that way. Thank you so much. <laughs> There's a lot of creativity behind that. No. But like I was saying earlier that Malia said to me is like, you you have to have the ability to push past the no's to get to the yeses. You have to have a really thick skin. And I think I'm the type of person, I'm stubborn and I'm determined. And so, you know, even though so many people told me that over the years, people very close to me, very beloved to me, you know, told me to quit. And I was just like, nope, nope. I have got my eyes on the prize. I'm sticking to the point. That hopefully pays off over time. So that's that's the the worst advice that I have always ignored is basically to quit. I'm going to skip the next question in favor of number five, if that's okay with you, Ulrich. Sure. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you'd give yourself? That is a really good question. I think I would tell myself not to worry so much. I've done a lot of worrying over the years and mostly about money, honestly. The the financial piece of being an independent filmmaker is very difficult for, for middle class people. And I think I've spent too much time worrying about that. And I think that I think that it's important as a filmmaker to to really own your relationship to and with money and to get comfortable with not having a lot of it, you know, <laughs> and just <laughs> accept, you know, keep your costs low, do what you need to do. But I think I would tell myself, you know, you're 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 not gonna earn as much money as you'd like and you need to just be okay with that. Yeah. Last question is making movies hard. Is making movies hard? <laughs> yeah. That's the question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, short answer. It's really hard, but as hard as it is, it's equally beautiful. Nice. Amazing. That's why people do it. (laughs) It's a little (laughs) bit addictive. Yeah. Where should people go if they want to support your movie? Like, where should they? Are you on Instagram, Twitter, or website? What should people do? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Well, they should definitely follow thirsty's progress on instagram so you can follow us at thirsty the film and and we have a lot of cool behind the scenes pictures on there and stuff and we also share you know just where we're at with the film and how it's coming along a lot of shout outs to our amazing crew and cast and my website is purelandpictures.com and you can check out information about thirsty and all my other films there yeah i think that those are good ways to kind of keep track of of this film 
Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber, back to the show. Liz, what do you remember about our talk with Emily? I mean, every time you ask me that question, I'm just... I always think like, do I like them or do I not like them? And it's like, I really like Emily Apt. I thought she's like, I mean, I think we're around the same age, but she's like become like a role model. Like, I think she's so incredibly (laughs) impressive. I think it's funny is that I wish she had done less because then she'd be more relatable. Like, I remember she was talking about her journey in 2009 from her first fiction feature to her second fiction feature. And it also made, like, at that point, I was like, oh, great. You know, she took some time. She she chose to raise a family with that time, whatever. That's so relatable. It's okay to take a break from your career. And then I forgot, oh, but then she made, like, three documentary features in that interim, too. So I just want to, I'm annoyed at how productive she is, is how <laughs> I feel. Yeah. Well... <laughs> It was interesting because, like, you know, she, like, basically lived the filmmaker dream, like, in 2009. Like, she premiered at Sundance. She got reps. Her movie got, you know, bought and sold and all that stuff. And so, yeah, like, everything came together. But then she had so many, like, challenges along the way, you know. And then, you know, talking about... Like being being a young mother while like also trying to like, you know, go after the next director job and stuff and like how challenging that was and directing commercials and having to pump while directing commercials and then like being looked down upon by that, you know, by the crew. It it was crazy, man. Seemed tough. And then like losing her reps and then. Yeah, it just seemed like a lot that this woman went through on her filmmaking journey. And it was really interesting to hear through everything. And then like to to basically, you know, witness her getting it all together and then making her second feature the way that she wanted to make it. And then like being, you know, involved with it. I'm I'm working as an AE or I I did the AE work on the beginning and I'm probably going to do help with the finishing of the movie, like prepping it for color and sound and stuff. And I got to see like all the footage and it looks great. It's got some really amazing cast in it. It's just really a cool movie. And so it's just really fun to see like all that hard work, all that struggle, all that toil pay off in, you know, her getting to live the dream that she's been that she's been living and fighting for. You know, she's just a badass. She's a badass. Yeah. Okay, it is time for the game. Okay, are you ready? Oh, so let me tell you everybody what the game is for people who don't know. So the game is a filmmaking challenge that Eric Toms, our producer, gives us to try to see if we can figure out every week. And we read these blind. So Liz has not heard this question. She has not read this question. She does not know what is going to be asked of her. And it's basically going to be like a quandary, like a situation in making a movie that you have to come up with a solution for, you know, because, you know, we always come up, come up with crazy, crazy challenges on making our films and you never know what's going to happen. So this is just a fun, like, you know, what if scenario that we have to solve. So, Liz will answer first, and then I'll do my answer, but here we go. I'm going to read it now. You've been pounding the pavement, looking for a financier for your latest feature. Multiple times, you've gotten partial financing, only to have it fall through a few months later. One day, you receive an email from two financiers who are interested in paying for your film in its entirety. You meet with them and discover that they're bright, energetic, and in love with your script. 
you also discover that the two have made their money from the porn industry and that they've both had prolific porn careers. If you take the money, their reputation will no doubt be forever entwined with your film. To exasperate things, the two would-be producers are attention hogs and will no doubt scream from the rooftops that they've helped you make your film. Not to mention they've been sued multiple times in the past. Do you... (laughs) I'd like he just sneaks that in there. (laughs) Do you take the money and make the film... Turn them down and look for financing elsewhere. Negotiate for a smaller budget in hopes that they might be silent partners or other. What do you do, director? What do you do? I mean, that like last sentence of like they've been sued is the only problem I have. (laughs) I am like so I'm I'm very pro. I'm anti-censorship pro-pornography. I don't think it should be called pornography. It should be called erotica. I think more people should engage in it. I'm very sex positive. So I would be like, yes, please. Let's work together. This sounds awesome. I don't care if you're involved with porn. The concern is that they were sued several times. What the hell is up with that? Why were they sued? What's the problem? Are they not engaging in safe practices on their sets? Are they exploiting people? I don't think pornography is inherently evil. So I think the question insinuates that there are corruptions to the adult industry that I don't think that we should be assuming exist just, you know, by default. So I would say that I'm on board to work with them as long as whatever these lawsuits are, are unfounded. And I would be doing my own research before before coming on board but this is very this feels very clear to me get the financing work work with these cool you know these cool iconoclastic characters and make your movie Auric. well the line that is really sticking out to me is that you've met them and discover they're bright energetic and in love with your script so if they're bright and energetic and they're so they're smart people like I think a lot of the other things that you're like insinuating in this question like aren't going to be problems. Yeah. But I why mean, were they sued? Why? why? Why were they sued? I do agree that if that sued line wasn't in there that I would be totally game. I, I wish that that had more detail to it because I think that is where the whole crux of this lies is like the suing. But I've worked with people who've been sued before and you know like I it's funny like one of the, one of my past employers was one of those people if you like look up on the better bureaus a better business bureau website they have all these flags on them (laughs) and like all these people complaining about working with them in the past like never getting paid and this and that or whatever and then being sued because they never got paid by people and you know like like i always got paid so like you know and he was straightforward and honest with me always so like i never felt like you know and I mean, I, I could see where, why that would happen based on the people they are. But like, I also was like just going into it, knowing the situation and whatever, like being aware right. of what I was getting myself into. So I feel like, yeah, doing the research on the suing and as long as it wasn't like they were mistreating people or like doing weird, unethical things. It was just like like some sort of disagreement or something, whatever that like, you know, I could see their side of it. Then I think I would be fine, too. Yes. This this was easy, Eric. This yeah. was easy. We want money, and this is not an evil thing. Pornography is not evil. Let's yeah, fund our I, films. In fact, I, what I, if we had more integration between the two industries? <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah, that would be cool. I worked on a video for Pornhub too, and they were they were great. You know, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and I worked with some porn stars. They were really cool. I mean, yeah. we didn't do porn or anything. We were just shooting this this fun little sizzle video. But like, yeah, it was. 
it was good stuff, you know. We live they're in just an absurd people. society where they're, uh, they're not evil. <laughs> they're not demon people or something. They're not like yeah, nasty, you know. It's like it's just a job. Yeah. I think that they should be made better. I think pornography is cheaply made and is the stories are horrible and the acting is yeah. like I just want us to put more artistic attention into the creation of adult stories, but that has nothing to do with this question. And that's my own personal sound, you know, soapbox. All of you, do you disagree? Do you agree? Emphatically, non-emphatically, send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Check out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer. They publish your logline to a network of industry professionals. They have consultation courses, contests, and they have a top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. Head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Side note, I think that's the first and only time I've ever read that entire blurb. Okay, back to story. (laughs) Thanks to Emily for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Brymood, for doing the editing. Thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thank you for listening and talk to you all next week. Please go to WGA contract. Did I spell it wrong? I did. (laughs) (laughs) Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.